and Tartaria. Tartaria. Exactly. How could how could there be a huge empire just a few hundred years ago, according to the maps and stuff, and it not have relevance to us today? Something is really odd there, and I've heard multiple things on it, and I. I'm not sure if I believe some of the things that are coming out on it. Like they were purposely hidden to Terria because they wanted, because they corrupted it and wanted to keep it. I heard some like weird things, but yeah. I kind of think they're doing what they're doing to us right now. Like they destroyed that empire and then they covered it up. Kind of like what I think they're trying to do what they did to Terria to us. And maybe I'm wrong. That's just a gut I have. I have no proof. Okay. so. We have the the empire of Tataria, and do we have remnants of that empire in the peoples? Yes, we do, because we have the Tartars, we have the Caucasus peoples. If you go deep enough into the Tartars and the Caucasus peoples, also called the Cossacks, okay, if you look into that, that you're not supposed to talk about the Cossacks. It was done away with in the Bolshevik Revolution. Because if you concentrate on the Cossacks, you find out that the last, uh, or that the officialdom of the area, which was the Russian Tsars, used the Cossacks to do what? Destroy the last of the giants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they destroyed the giants. I heard that. If you go back to pre. Russian Revolution, you will find descriptions and drawings because they the, it was back in the 18, I want to say 1880s or 1890s. You will find drawings of Cossacks bringing caged giants to the Tsar. Isn't okay. that crazy? There's newspaper clippings from here with giants and bones and things. With giants and bones. everyone, welcome to Wetwired. This is episode 15, the Conspiracy Skeptic Tartaria episode. I'm Sean Andes. A few weeks ago, I was the guest on another show called the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast, hosted by Carl Mamer. Carl is a longtime member of the skeptic community and recently published his first book, The Skeptic's Book of Lists. Carl was also our first guest on Wetwired. You can hear him back in premium episode number three, where he tells us about Ernst Zundel, the German-Canadian neo-Nazi agitator and Nazi space program crank. For this episode, Carl asked me to talk about my favorite conspiracy theory. I know that's a seriously loaded request, and I had a little bit of trouble because I was stuck on favorite for what reason? Favorite because it's so completely out there that I can't believe anybody really buys this? or favorite because it has really strong racist undertones and it's incredibly damaging to our society. And in the end, I decided to split the difference and talk about Grand Tartaria. 
and welcome back to another episode of the conspiracy skeptic i'm your conspiracy skeptic carl mamer and with me is a host of a very funny podcast i don't know if you intended to be funny but uh you know life is funny sometimes uh sean uh, you have to help me pronounce your last name it's Andis. yeah Andis. sean Andis. Yeah. great okay yeah yeah sean yeah you and your co-host uh julian paul butt is that his real name? Absolutely. Name? It is. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then. Yeah. He does. He, he leans into his last name from time to time. Yeah. That, but, and sort of changes it a bit. So it always made me sort of wonder, it's like, is that just, is he just making that up and just having fun? He, he likes the butt stuff. I don't know. It's, it's, it's his business. It's his business. But yes, yes. You do, you do a podcast called Wet Wired. And, um, and I was on your podcast, you know, we call this log rolling, right? Yeah. I roll you a log, you roll it back to me. So yeah, I was on your podcast a number of uh, months ago. We were talking about flat, no, so hollow earth. Yeah. And uh, uh, we were talking about um, Ernst Zuber. Ernst Zundel. Ernst Zundel. Zundel. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Zundel. yeah. Yeah, the famous Canadian neo-Nazi, he's dead now, uh, who also promoted like things like Nazi UFOs and, you know, Nazis have a base at the South Pole, all kinds of, all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, you do. So I was on your podcast, Wet, Wet Wired, and I'm having you on my podcast now. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit more about your podcast. What, uh, what is Wet Wired all about? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, not necessarily intended to be funny, but it's a very funny world. So we end up covering a lot of things that we can't help but to laugh at a little bit. We do try to take it seriously, but sometimes it gets the better of us. In general, we've had a very hard time coming up with the elevator pitch for what it is we're doing. It started off as we're just going to talk about the things that we're interested in. And that tends to be this wide variety of things. You know, we, we've covered everything from the Protestant work ethic to negative 48 and JFK being resurrected in Dallas. Yes. So it's, it's, it's a wide range of, uh, of topics that we tend to go through. And we sort of settled on, we're talking about bad ideas and people who spread them. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I find it interesting that your podcast, I mean, obviously you're available on iTunes, but you don't have a web page. There's a web page. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there is a web page. We actually went old school because the domain wasn't available. So it is wetwire.net. Oh, okay. Okay. Wetwire.net. I was so sorry. I just thought, boy, you just seem to run everything out of your Twitter, which I kind of thought was sort of, you know, very cool and minimalist. You know, it's like, <laughs> screw, screw web pages, screw yeah. a Facebook page. We're just going to run it all out. We of definitely Twitter. don't do Facebook, but the, and the, the website is really there. I mean, in the future, we'll use it more, but the, uh, but we're really, we're running the, the podcast, uh, just, out of SoundCloud, and then you know, of course, the Patreon stuff we have as well for the premium episodes. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it was on your podcast. I compliment you, Mike. I like love the name of your podcast because to me, it's very, uh, you know, uh, William Gibson neuromancer. It really harkens back to that sort of. And still, even after you mentioned it in that episode when when you were on our show, still nobody has any idea. It's like they've totally missed that <laughs> reference entirely. And yeah, so yeah, it's straight out of Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, is it? Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I was going to say, yes. The, um, and now I, I know Julian, he's he's based out of the Seattle area, yeah. correct? Right. Where where are you located in the world? I, I'm in the sunny Southwest and uh, just outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. 
Ah, okay, okay. So we're actually recording this at three thirty. So it's, it's it's like lunchtime for you. It's one thirty for me. One thirty. Okay, or two two hour two hour difference. Yeah, very very cool. Okay, yeah yeah yeah. So uh, now you, uh, we were you know I wanted to get you on my podcast because um, you always have sort of interesting ideas, and then I'm like, hey, what's your favorite conspiracy, and what is your favorite conspiracy? At least for the purposes of the podcast. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, a loaded but. question. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> what is a favorite conspiracy you believe in or the favorite yeah. conspiracy you like talking about? I actually don't believe in any of these conspiracy theories. Right, right. Um, so for, yeah, for, for, for my assignment, I, uh, <laughs> I, I have been unable to take my eyes off of any references to Tartaria and Antiquitech and the Great Mud Flood. That, right. that one, it, it, this one has just been fascinating to me. So yeah, I've chosen that for my homework. Yeah, this is this is nuts. You know this this Tartarian Empire. I, there there is there is very little new under the sun in terms of conspiracy theories. I mean, it's, it's all just regurgitation of the protocols. And I, I will say that the Tartarian Empire. There's nothing technically new, but it's like they have mixed various flavors of cat food together in a way absolutely you wouldn't, you wouldn't think to jam together so that setup tell us more <laughs> about the great tartarian empire what what is this craziness well, and when when did it first come to light well well that's i mean well when it first came to light is an interesting is, is an interesting story on its own because it seems to be and it's considered by some people to be the the first entirely internet grown conspiracy theory mm-hmm. I don't know that it actually is. I, I actually just listened to your uh, to your recent episode where uh, your guest was talking about Nasara Gasara. Yes, and yes. I think that might be the first one. I think that one takes it because it was that was getting spread in Yahoo groups and places like yeah. that, and that definitely predates Tartaria. Not Agreed. necessarily the um, the the maybe the 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 founding stories of Tartaria. But online, it definitely predates it. Right, yes. But that that all said, this is something that just sparked up largely on Reddit and on message boards and sort of, you know, recesses that, that you know, people don't not normally come across unless they're looking for this kind of thing. And even now, there aren't a lot of people talking about it on Reddit when you compare it to other conspiracy <laughs> theories. But it is getting more and more traction. And you can see yeah. on, on Google Trends that actually 2022 has been a high point so far for conversations about Tartaria. So we're looking at momentum getting built. And we're, you know, we're, we're hitting, you know, somewhere in there, there was probably a, a couple of little inflection points that changed the trajectory of how widely this was getting spread. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, no, no, I guess tar- Tartaria, while not a real place, uh, well, I mean, it is technically kind of a kind of a, a real, real place, kind yeah. of kind of real place, kind of a nod. I, I liken it to the, you know, here be dragons thing you find on maps. So oh, that's almost so. exactly what it is. And I, I think an even better. I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to get ahead of myself really quickly yeah. here. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to back off of what I was about to say uh, just now and get back into like some of the context about how this came <laughs> about, because like one of the things that's that makes following this uh this particular conspiracy theory i mean and even calling it that gives it attributes a way too much sense of cohesion to it because this is an entirely crowdsourced sort of operation 
Okay. There's no very, there are very few people that are steering the direction that the story is going. And yeah, I mean, just like with QAnon, there are a few influencers that are, you know, and are, are picking directions and a lot of people following them, but they don't always share notes. And I mean, so it ends up with this sort of version control problem that you might have with software where not everybody gets all the updates at the same time. And, and there's definitely a lot of examples of in YouTube videos, which is another place where this is being widely spread, where a YouTuber will start talking and then just have this moment of pause and say, you know, I never really thought about it like this before, and then just start rattling off some new direction or connection that they've seen with the Tartarian story. And this makes it ripe to change rapidly and, you know, in different directions. Yeah. So what do I, at the core, what, what is, what is, what is the, well, what is I, the core claim? I, I thought about how to handle this and I decided that I'm just going to tell the story as it's told the best <laughs> way I possibly can. Okay, good. So <laughs> at some point, somewhere in the last 2000 years or so, an enormous technologically advanced empire called Tartaria or Great Tartary or just Tartary what rose up in Eurasia. And the idea is that this this empire was, it's basically, it stretched around the Northern Hemisphere and went all the way from Western Europe, all the way around, uh, completely covering North America. The, and, you know, and, and basically in this time of the world, everything for the Tartarians was generally speaking, absolutely awesome. They had it all under control. Uh, there was free energy available for everybody. Mercury powered vortex engines, uh, generated electricity, which was transmitted directly through the air, uh, through architectural elements that were built into this very specific type of Tartarian architecture. Um, maglev technology gave them flying carpets. Oh, yes. And they can control the weather. Yeah. So, that's, so I mean, they just, they had everything under control. The population, even though it's, the, the empire was located in Eurasia was entirely white except for the except for the presence of red-haired giants which right. you know also they don't I, don't I don't know what the breakdown of the population was demographic wise how many people were giants versus regular sized people um and notable rulers in the Tartarian kings line have been Genghis Khan Tamerlane um who were both also written in as white uh, <laughs> even though they're Mongols. And so, you know, so this, this sort of ethnic whitewashing of Tartaria isn't necessarily universal. There's some people who dissent and see it as more of a multicultural, multi-ethnic utopia. And gradually over time, Western European powers grew in strength, finally challenging Tartaria's dominance. And one of the, uh, in the early 1800s, uh, some of these smaller powers, specifically Napoleon and and uh, when he was controlling France and Tsar Alexander I joined power and fought a huge battle against Tartaria. And that that combined with, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, a global cataclysm called the mud flood was finally enough to put Tartaria to rest. Right. And, and now, what, what? Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say what. So, you know. <laughs> That cool is a, such a mouthful already. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So, yeah. So cool story, bro. Yeah. Um, right, right. I, and, I uh, literally wrote that in my notes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Uh, no. 
I, I'm going to sort of say that, that well, I mean, one of the ideas behind this whole Tartarian empire is it's, it's kind of that, comes back to that sort of Atlantean hyper diffusionism. It borrows from that, yet, you know, where, where you know, the, you know, the, like the Graham Hancocks of the world will tell us, you know, oh, 10,000 BC. This is actually like fairly recent history oh, that yeah. we don't know about. This is Napoleon and Tsar Alexander the first who yeah. in the actual historical timeline, not this version of it, <laughs> fought each other. And Napoleon famously lost that battle in Russia, you know, like largely due to the weather. And, but in the Tartarian story of things, they were on, they were teamed up. And this, this is, this is an example of how the, uh, the like superficial things are taken and really just, they, and really just run with the, the, the association and, you know, the alliance that was indicated in the Tartarian story between Napoleonic France and Tsarist Russia is entirely resting on a few, a few drawings of Napoleon and Tsar Alexander the first together during the time when probably when they had just signed some peace accords and had a temporary alliance, basically trying to shut down all the actions of, of great Britain. And the fact that the uniforms of the Russian military and the French military are vaguely similar. Like they wore blue coats and white pants. <laughs> like that's that's it. Oh, and French was spoken at the Russian court. Yes, that's yes. <laughs> yeah. well, all, those, I mean, all those things yeah. together are definitely mean that they were in an alliance for all time against the Tartarians. Yeah, I mean, we sort of forget that that French was sort of the the international language of diplomacy around that time. That, the term I mean, is actually is still lingua franca. Right, yes, yes. <laughs> like, I mean, and, talking about the common language, right, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. We, like it and, still gets used. Yeah. <laughs> and two, it's like I mean, I mean, based on my reading, it's um, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of like alternative histories where people are like, you know, you know, you know, no human history doesn't span like about. You know, eight thousand years. It, it really spans like a thousand. Like, like they, 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 they. You know, the real historians have got it all wrong. Um, you know, these people we think were different kings were actually one king, and and so the, 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 again, there's nothing new here, but they're they're mixing flavors of cat food in interesting ways. So they're they're kind of borrowing from that sort of um, alternative timeline uh, conspiracies, almost new chronology. Yeah, yeah, the new chronology. Yeah, right? yes, and yes. and that's 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 actually the like one of the strongest influences for the way the timeline is kind of rearranged. But the I mean the the evidence for for this rearrangement all comes after the fact to somehow substantiate the assumption that it has been rearranged. <laughs> but the 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 way that it's rearranged is. Yeah, is actually, I mean, the, well, the fact that there is a primary source, source is really indicated by the fact that all of this came on the scene as almost a whole package. <laughs> and, and it was almost entirely there. Uh, details have been added and, you know, kind of modified and, you know, things have been sussed out in different ways by different people. But the, the, the Tartarian story just sort of appeared. And the largely, I mean, that that should tell us probably that there is some sort of primary source out there written by somebody or a few somebodies. And in this case, that person is probably Anatoly Fomenko. And he, he's the uh, the a Russian mathematician and sort of armchair history buff that decided that 
everything was was all mixed up and and he he's the one that, that devised the term new chronology and right, yes, yes. He, he was basing it off of what he saw to be errors in ptolemy's records of lunar eclipses hmm. and then he did a really sort of uh funky statistical uh analysis of historical documents where he was focusing on matching periods of war famine starvation uh war and famine and you know civic unrest and because he considered those to be things that people would write about more often than writing about periods of peace he's probably not off when he come you know with that assumption but then what he did is he saw these he started finding these patterns in his in his analysis and it led him to believe that basically about a thousand years of human history was a mistake. Yes, yes. And there's other things that go into this too, including this some sort of a confusion about how people were interpreting the Roman letter I and misattributing it as a one. So basically, 19, anything that happened in the year 980 was misattributed to 1980. <laughs> and so on and so forth. So if it happened in 100, it was misattributed to 1100. And this also allowed them to, well, allowed Fomenko and anybody who had the misfortune of reading anything he ever wrote to start uh, assuming that basically what we think of as, as the Byzantine Empire is just a mistaken copy of the Roman Empire or vice versa. I mean, it, 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 like either way, it was only there was only one empire and it wasn't both. So that allowed him to place um, in his writing, he put the 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 uh, campaigns of Julius Caesar that took place in the British Isles those actually occurred in Albania and yes. you know and and so on and so forth you know these type these types of uh, putting things to rights as you know in his, in his mind occurred over and over and he he wrote I think a seven part series of uh uh called history fiction or science and that that I I don't know if it's available in English. It has an English. I actually I take that back. It is available in English. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah now he uh, he um I mean he even took like say like you know things that occurred in the Middle East like you know Jesus was you know was actually some you know Russian Orthodox saint in you know, like like he just he he was a kind of a, a very super nationalistic Soviet guy and really just wanted to sort of make seem like all culture stems from the Soviet Union. So he just kind of like moved a lot of, you know, like Rome was part of the Soviet Empire, you know, the events of Rome, the events of, you know, the Bible, the, the, he moved them up in time and placed them within at least the Soviet sphere of control. Oh, absolutely. And and he had the, he had a mentor, this guy named Nikolai Morozov. And this Morozov is really the one that kicked this off <laughs> as an idea. But Fomenko ran with it. You know, he, like he was never well known as a mathematician in the Soviet Union, but he has been he is very well known and he's still alive now, <laughs> but he's very well known for his new chronology. And what, what he did, according to him, you said, give, you know, just to give the guy a fair shake. He says that he's entirely nonpartisan and he's just trying to straighten things out, <laughs> except, you know, Basically, in, in the roulette in the roulette wheel that Fomenko is spinning, it always comes up Russian. 
And the and so we end up with everything is Russian. King Arthur, who's largely a fiction anyway, is Russian. And the events that took place actually took place in Russia. Uh, you know, all the Arthurian legends. Uh, G, like you mentioned, Jesus, Jesus is Russian. Um, essentially, nothing of historical importance ever happened outside of what's considered to be the Russian Empire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. So the oh, so the 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 good people of Reddit have uh, kind of they they sort of I don't know if they rediscovered this and and they've sort of now layered on you know they they layered on their own sort of sort of ideas uh, now. What, what, I mean, but what is what is the evidence they offer <laughs> for the existence of a Tartarian Empire? Yeah, and it's yeah. and it's sort of it's hyper diffusionist tendrils around the world. Yeah, the, the, the evidence, the first pieces of evidence that people will typically point at, especially if they're trying to convince somebody who doesn't know anything about this, will be these fantastic, beautifully drawn maps from the last 500 years or so. You know, basically maps that are ranging from around the, the, the 15th century up until uh, approximately the 19th. And on these maps, you'll see this vast region in Eurasia that is just simply labeled Tartary or Grand Tartary or something like that. It doesn't usually, you will not usually see any maps that are going to say Tartarian Empire. I, I never saw a map that said that. It doesn't mean they're not there and I just overlooked it. You, you, start, you, I've, you can see dozens and dozens of these maps. I mean, they're... Another another great point of a sort of a indoctrination, I guess, a vehicle of indoctrination is Pinterest. And on Pinterest, you can see all the Tartarian maps. And okay. you know, people have done a lot of work collecting these things together. What you can't see on Pinterest is where, what, what country or what language these uh, are is associated with these accounts. The, you know, so we we don't know who's spreading all of this information. Right. Yeah. So but, I mean, it was right. It was basically just like, like I say, like that here be dragons. It was just, it was just a placeholder. Like we don't really know what's here. No one's actually explored m much of, you know, what is today, you know, Russia. So they just called it Tartaria. Right. And, and, and there's, yeah, a, well, there's a simple, to, to be filled in later. Yeah. Well, and there's a simple explanation for this is that you're, you're absolutely right. They, the map makers in this time period, especially in the earliest periods, you know, in the in the 15th century, they didn't know what was over there, but they did have very good knowledge, uh, you know, very, like very good uh, firsthand reports of the people that were on the eastern edge of the Russian controlled areas of the Russian Empire that they did know about, because Russia there was uh, was was very much in contact with the with the uh, the countries of Western Europe, so they knew about the Tartars. And they just labeled everything as Tartaria until they knew otherwise, which basically meant that Tartary went all the way to China. And th this is not an you know an, an unheard of practice. There's the same sort of approach was taken by the ancient Greeks when they labeled vast swaths as Scythia. They knew about the Scythians. They didn't know what was on the other side of the Scythians. So they just called it all Scythia. And as far as they were concerned, Scythia was the largest country in the world. And the because, again, you know, everything all the way to, you know, the mythical land of Hyperborea was Scythian. Yeah. And, you know, the so that went on, even though they they really could 
you know, you you find things out. You find you know, like you you read about things when you when you research topics like this, where you think like you know, it didn't have to be this way. It could have been better. Um, and you know, there there was a uh, there was actually an Italian friar named Giovanni da Pian del Carpine, who was in the Mongol regions in the 1200s and actually wrote a book. Uh, it was called the, uh, the history of the P of the Mongols or the peoples we know as Tartars. <laughs> and okay. he even had the correct name for them. <laughs> and, right. the, but that didn't matter. You know, like that, that <laughs> did not matter at all because nobody read his book and, you know, and, you know, so the, the Tartaria idea just kept getting passed on and on into the future. But, like from from almost from decade to decade, looking at these maps, you can see the region slowly start to change. You end up with Russian Tartary, Chinese Tartary, even right. Mongol Tartary. And what what's happening is that knowledge is getting more and more um, uh, more and more accurate. And so the region the regions uh, that are labeled Tartary get smaller and smaller because they know more and more about the peoples that are living there. Of course, this is also used as evidence of a shrinking Tartarian Empire. And, you know, so basically they, they kept losing ground, you know, like, you know, from one century to the next until finally it was just gone. And, you know, the, the other thing that they could have done is looked at Chinese maps of the same time periods because they don't show anything called Tartary because the Chinese knew they were called Mongols. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they built a wall to keep them out. <laughs> like, they knew all about them. <laughs> the um, you say the uh, I mean, there there there's a wonderful kind of architectural. You don't find too many architectural conspiracies, but there's there's a wonderful architectural conspiracy, or, or the, some of the evidence they use to you know to show that like. You, the the Tartarian Empire kind of straddled a lot of at least the Western world, and and even getting down to us, apparently Australia and New Zealand is oh, yeah, uh, absolutely is sort, of, sort of sort of like yeah. kind of like really nineteenth century architecture. Did you encounter any of this? Like buildings with really high ceilings. What uh, <laughs> what is so that telling us? Th this is this is exactly uh, this is exactly the kind of example I was talking about of. The, of different people spinning at different directions, depending right. on the, the flight of fancy that they have in, in the moment. And so initially this was an entirely Northern hemispheric empire, the way that it's described, but very recently it is also rolled in uh, sites in New Zealand and Australia as evidence of Tartarian occupation. So now we have a truly global empire that's been described. Uh, evident, but you know, evidently there wasn't so much going on in Southeast Asia or in central China or Japan you know, because we don't see the, you know, we don't see that kind of evidence, but if there is, perhaps it's only in, in those, uh, those regional languages and it just hasn't hit us yet. So it doesn't mean it's not there. The, you know, there, there's, there is a very large QAnon following in Japan that you wouldn't know about unless you were getting reports from people who live there and speak the language fluently. It, yeah. it is very clear that Tartarians did not like spicy food. They just seemed to avoid right. anywhere that had spicy food. <laughs> well, they yeah. and generally the the weather. I think they avoided the hemisphere, right. <laughs> they, so, they, yeah. or they avoided the equator. <laughs> so the, yeah. So what? What? what so build, the, the architecture. Buildings with high, the yeah, architecture. High ceilings. Yeah. The architecture why? is fascinating. Um, yeah. They, they've they, got that one solved. Yeah, why? And, why and why that, are people building buildings with such high ceilings in the nineteenth century? And and that is that is really. I mean, it has nothing to do with wanting to project power or control over a 
of a of a land, especially in the United States, where you know like plenty of the images that are used as evidence, and there's almost always photographs. Uh, turn of the century photographs are almost always the evidence that's used of Tartarian architecture. Um, very little touring of 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 still standing structures and pointing things out. Mostly, it is uh, it is uh, the it is photographs from you know these different these uh, early twentieth century, late eighteenth late eighteenth eighteen hundreds, and the 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 photographic evidence is is really fascinating because you can find Tart the Tartarian style of architecture <laughs> basically everywhere because pretty much every style of architecture before the modernist period is considered Tartarian, and that goes all the way to the pyramids of Egypt. The the remaining ruins of the Roman Empire, uh, the 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 architecture of of the Byzantine Empire, which, as we know, is actually the same thing. And the <laughs> according to Fomenko and the Tartarian uh, phantom time proponent uh, proponents, the but even that gets a little blurry because many of the Tartarian uh, uh, adherents they have a difficult they have a really difficult time identifying architectural styles so for <laughs> example they've identified the crystal palace uh, in london which was built for the great exposition as a um, or a great exhibition as being a perfect example of tartarian architecture even though actual architects and people who study architecture consider that to be one of the earliest examples of modernist because that's really the differentiation that they 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 reveal themselves the tartarian believers reveal themselves to be architectural traditionalists i suppose because that's the mark of what makes modernist architecture is getting rid of ornamentation and as soon as the ornamentation goes away they consider that to be the mark that you know we're no longer building tartarian buildings anymore the anything before that is fair game right. and you know of course you know like a lot of these buildings do have high ceilings and Again, that's either to accommodate giants or to project strength of a nation. It really depends on you know six of six of one, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 I like the idea that it's there to for giants because like, you think know, part of the Tartarian Empire was peopled by giants. Absolutely, so they had, yeah. They need tall ceilings. It, now, no, never will you hear an explanation that makes any sense to uh, to get get rid of the problem of the human sized doors. But, you know, somehow the giants just live in the building. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it does answer a question, right? It's like, you know, you long train journey. You come into town and you come to this old, you know, you know, turn of the century train station that's beautiful, super high ceilings. You're tired. You're not. Who notices that? Right. So right. they're not building it for tired travelers. Right. Yeah. They're obviously building it for giants. Obviously. It's, it's not obviously. ornamental, like, as you say, to project, you know, just sort of tell people like, well, you're in a really impressive. You've, hey, hey, train traveler, you've arrived someplace. Start exactly. It's not meant yeah. to impress foreign travelers. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Which for, is for the, almost for the exactly what it's for. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but the, the, um, the, the other thing that ties into the architecture is photographic evidence of, of the various world's fairs that took place right. in the early 20th century. And well, also, also late 1800s. Some of the <laughs> earliest ones happened in the late 1800s. And of, of course, you know, the, the, along the lines of the Crystal Palace, 
a lot of these buildings were meant to be temporary structures. You can, <laughs> there's so much photo evidence of this. And, you know, like specifically, uh, San Francisco had had the, uh, hosted the World's Fair twice, and it was an absolutely grand endeavor. And f so for these events, some of them, some of the buildings were intended to be new permanent structures for, the, you know, as the city was trying to beautify itself and create new architecture for people to to inhabit the and so, but by far most of it was meant to be temporary. And these temporary buildings to keep costs down were basically built out of straw bales and plaster. <laughs> and, you know, because it was inexpensive. So as ornate and, and glorious as they looked on the outside, it was pretty much spit and gum holding them together on the inside. And many of these buildings were falling apart by the end of the fair. You know, like a good rain and a stiff wind would have damaged these buildings. So they were, of course, all torn down because they were amazing safety hazards. Now, there were exceptions to this. Um, there's a particular building, the name of which I can't remember right now, that was built as the uh, in the, the second uh, World's Fair that was hosted in San Francisco. And it was famously uh, defended by, uh, by a, a group of supporters, including um, the Hearst family, uh, the, the paper baron. And they, you know, to maintain that structure. And it was, it was kept around for a while, but it, at, it got to the point that it was too, it was just too dilapidated to continue maintaining. So they just rebuilt it out of actual durable material. <laughs> Another example of the same thing happening was the, uh, the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee. In, in Centennial Park in Nashville is a three-quarter replica of the Athenian Parthenon. And in complete with a statue of Athena and a six foot tall statue of Nike standing in her palm. It's a beautiful building. It's it, it houses an art gallery now. And, and of course, just like the Georgia Guidestones, it's being targeted by evangelicals for destruction because it's glorifying pagan gods. Pagan. And, <laughs> but, you know, at the time of the World's Fair that took place in Nashville, it was people loved it so much that they wanted it kept around. So in, in, in exactly the same story, the original was built out of basically plaster and really cheap lumber. And it, it became a safety hazard very quickly. So they replaced it with one that was built out of stone and concrete and, and including a replica of the, um, the, uh, uh, of the freezes that, that are no longer on the actual Parthenon that live in the, uh, museum and, Great in uh, in London, you know like the, the uh, yeah, and so the so these uh the Elgin marbles that's what they are, and you know so you can see all of that in Centennial Park in Nashville, and were it not for how for the number of people that just love the having that building there, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have recreated it in again in durable material. But all of this destruction is just the elites trying to get rid of every evidence of these actual Tartarian capitals that were speckled all over the planet at one point. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big cover up. Like, like, I mean, if you look at sort of New York, right? Like, you know, was it Penn station? And the, the original Penn station is an yeah. example of this. The singer building is another, yeah, uh, another building, point yeah. that uh, another piece of uh, architecture that they fixate on. And at one point, the Singer building, which was built by the sewing machine company as its headquarters, 
it was a beautiful building. At one point, it was the tallest building in the world. <laughs> they immediately outgrew it and then it and decided to knock it down. Uh, the original Capitol building, I want to say in Chicago, which had a dome that was bigger than the U.S. Capitol building, mm. except they decided to knock it down after 60 years. Right. Like, no, they weren't. They, you know, they, they didn't realize it was too expensive to maintain this building and they decided to start starting from scratch was going to be much more cost effective. No, that's not the explanation. It has to be the fact that it was a Tartarian structure that needed to be removed before anybody right. else took photos of it and put it in encyclopedias and architectural uh, coffee table books and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like the idea, you, you know, one of the, you know, the whole ancient aliens, uh, you know, one of the problems of the whole ancient aliens thing is the, uh, the accusation that no one ever sort of said, you know, it's always brown people could not have built this, right? Right. And no one ever says, well, no, no one ever says, you know, well, white people could never built, you know, you know, Notre Dame or thing, things like that, or the Eiffel Tower, or you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Saint Paul's, you know, cathedral. But this conspiracy actually sort of kind of says, hey, hold my beer. Uh, All right, we actually, can do better. <laughs> yeah, actually, white people weren't able to build, you know, the the uh, you know Notre Dame or uh, you know well, the Eiffel Tower. That in fact, you know, this yeah, this Tatarian master race actually built it for 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 them. It's 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 uh, again, it's, they're borrowing the whole ancient aliens. People at that time could not have done it, but now it's white people could not have done it. it it's, it's amusing well, yeah, well, in that in that way. Well, specifically, Europeans couldn't have done it. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but exactly. but the Slavs were able to. If you see the the, well, the Fomenko uh, connection right, right. with the Tartarian story, the Slavic exactly. peoples had all this all of this know how, and it was stolen from them by the Europeans. By the yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I like because their evidence for that is they'll show like. Yeah, like they'll show like a picture of, you know, maybe like, you know, like say maybe turn of the century San Francisco, right? And, mm -hmm. and you know, there's a really nice train station in Tartarian architecture, you know, surrounded by really shitty wood buildings. And they're yeah. like, see, yeah, you know, how could they have built this? But they were only capable then of building these really shitty buildings. Like, like that will be their, their evidence. That's you know, the not evidence. Sort of like. Yeah. And, and it's not, it's never, and, and again, you know, if, if studying uh, or researching, sometimes studying is, is too lofty of a term, if researching these conspiracy theories has taught us anything, it's that the most convoluted, complicated idea with the absolute most number of moving pieces is the one that wins. <laughs> and the, it is it's this inverse Occam situation. And the there's another photo that, that I've seen spread around, and it, it's the same kind of thing that you're describing, where it's the Capitol in St. Louis. And you have this brand new Capitol building, and then just a bunch of very simple wood-clad A-frame homes sitting around it. And the explanation for that is, a, look at them. They have horses and buggies. How could they you know, have done this and this grand thing? And it's basically ignoring the explanation that what we're witnessing here is nation building <laughs> and that this is photo evidence of, you know, the essentially limitless resource of this nation that kept expanding further westward and gobbling everything up as it went along. Obviously, I'm talking about the United States here and that the and that this is a photo describing how people actually lived versus the projection that the nation wanted to create. 
And the nation was projecting this power by funding these capital buildings, uh, uh, by funding the construction of these of these new government buildings. Courthouses are another example of this, where this still goes on. <laughs> you know, where I live, they they you know maybe fifteen years ago they decided to to renovate this section of the downtown area. And they, it was just sort of like successive one-upmanship between the different district courthouses. And, you know, so you, you know, first, the first one to do this was the, the county, I believe it was. And not to be outdone, the, the federal courthouse rebuilt itself right across the street and was even grander. And then the city did the same thing. And now you have these three courthouses that sit on three corners of a single intersection so you could, I mean, if you happen to get arrested by three in three different jurisdictions on, you know, and had court at the same day, you, they were conveniently located. The, the, all of these buildings are a little bit more grand than the one across the street from it, you know? So, and <clears throat> these enormous sort of halls of justice that, that lend this might to the judicial system. That's exactly the motive that has been going on since anybody built anything in, in, in a grand, on a grand scale. As soon as they collect, could collect the human resources and the actual physical resources together, they did it. You know, this, this is the story of ziggurats in Mesopotamia. It's the same deal. You made your thing big and anybody who saw it knew how powerful you were. And but, now the, uh, you know, so the question, of course, is the... Um, you know, if these Tartarians, you know, you know, dominated the Western Hemisphere, or you know, Western civilization, where did they go? Well, that is a great question. But the one thing I don't want—I don't want to run past though, okay. just because it's so neat—is star forts. <laughs> oh, I've not heard of this. Tell All me. right, so star forts. This is this is again an example of a newer addition. This is this is something that's been added relatively recently, and they they star forts are these. They're also they're they're typically called bastion forts, and this was just a, okay. a military style of architecture right, right. that that was used for. Oh my! Uh, I, I'm going to say about four or five hundred years, and the, generally it's it's going to be a, a stone fortification around. A, a military uh, installation or even an entire town or a city that is shaped like a star. And the, the idea of this is that there were no blind spots here and made it much more easy to defend than the sort of um, the, the square or even circular shape of a, uh, of a, uh, like a British castle from <laughs> the, from the, from the medieval period. Like they that involved this blind these blind spots. So if you were on one wall, you couldn't see what was happening on another wall. And, right, right. But with these star forts, basically all the advantage is given to the defenders of the of the the town or the military installation. The that all went out completely out of fashion, out of necessity, with the advent of more powerful art, artillery in the nineteenth century. <laughs> It just became useless to spend all the time doing that because cannons were so powerful that they could knock these walls down and they didn't even need to get close enough, for, you know, to put themselves in danger to do it. Prior to that, we were talking about trebuchet and ballistas, you know, th like th and those did not have the power to break through these stone walls, at least not quickly. 
So it gave, you know, anyway, the, the, like it gave a lot more, a lot more advantage to the defenders of these structures. But these, but again, the simpler explanation that actual ha actually has historical and archaeological backing. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to do something else. And we're going to say that these walled compounds were actually Tartarian structures that were used to focus energy collected from the ether. And their presence basically all over uh, uh, like large areas of Europe and and North America, because at that time the Spanish were building them in in the North America. And I, I think the French built a few as well in uh, the area that they were controlling and the uh, along the Gulf Coast. That that's just again more evidence <laughs> for the might of of Grand Tartary, uh, you know, when it, in its heyday, the right. uh, that they were able to use these as as energy reservoirs or even batteries of a kind. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's like the you know why are all these pyramids in different cultures? Well, it must be you know the the diffusionists you know taught them how to build the pyramids, whereas you know same thing with but it's you know the the real explanation is it's just if you want to build high a pyramid is the perfect structure to do that same thing with a star fort right it's like absolutely it's like there's, there's all people this just practical. figure it out <laughs> yeah there's all this practicality <laughs> built into it yes. and 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 this and you know the the pyramids is like you know this this is something that i i always get snagged on when anybody talks about ancient aliens type things and they say like well we couldn't even do this now with modern technology and i remember some terrible history channel documentary that i saw about a decade and a half ago where they had a um a uh a foreman from a an industrial construction company that builds giant structures I and mean, dams and things like that and he was talking about how even with heavy equipment, this would be a challenging task to do. And okay, granted, I don't, I'm not denying that you know his know-how, and he doesn't know how he would go about doing this, and it would be it would be you know it would be some work to figure it out. Yeah. That's that's all great, but then to to lose this absolute wonder of what humans are capable of simply because we can't imagine how they did it back then with such primitive tools and no, yeah. no, no powered saws or anything like that, that just, you know, it just, it just destroys all of this sort of magnificent magnificence that we can see about our own ingenuity. Right. And, you know, because we just hand it off to somebody else. We just give away all the good stuff to, you know, anybody else, basically the first person waiting in line, you know, is, is, is usually <laughs> aliens, but you know, or the gods in general. Yeah. You know? Atlantean. Uh, yeah, or, and yeah. and you know, but <laughs> this, of course, being you know as um, you know as the 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 QAnon anonymous guys like to describe QAnon as a big tent conspiracy. Right. Yeah. The everybody gets to bring in their own pet <laughs> thing into Tartaria, yeah, because there's so many blank spots that anything that you have any sort of uh, of of again your own little bit of wondering or curiosity about you can drag that in there and a favorite guy for pretty much every con conspiracy story is tesla so oh, yeah. tesla gets dragged into the tartarian mythos as well as being this sort of you know well-intentioned but ultimately inadequate figure from you know the from the 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 newer the newer world replacing the 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 much more advanced tartarians and they 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 bring him in as try uh, and and say that most of the things that he discovered which are again you know just like king arthur largely imaginary the that 
he was a he got all of those ideas about Tesla coils and free energy and all this stuff from the Tartarians. Yeah, right. And that he was actually in Siberia at a tar- at a Tartarian site trying to re either restart or reverse engineer some Tartarian tech that was left over, some Antiquitech. Right. And that is the actual cause for the Tunguska event. Oh, <laughs> I pin that one on him too. Like, right? like there, there's this this punchline to these stories over and over. Like, no, no, yeah. no. Like, did you know this is what really happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as I like to say, yeah, just to, to stem the letters. You know, the uh, cult of the Tesla people. I don't think there's any listeners who are cult of the Tesla, but yeah, very smart guy. He over 300 patents. That's 300 more than I have. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. But, you know, yeah, too much. People over attribute things to him. So yeah, it's, I mean, uh, definitely raked over the coals by Edison, you know, like the, uh, I mean, absolutely. He got an unfair shake there. You know, like yeah. most, most assuredly, you right. know, like, right. Right. so, so where, where, what, what happened to these people? I mean, if they're, so, if, if they're just so great and amazing and they got giants, what, uh, what happened to them? Well, nobody knows what happens to the giants other than that. The Smithsonian was largely responsible for covering up their remains. Uh, I mean, there hasn't been a single shred of evidence supporting the giant story that doesn't look like either a modern day Photoshop or just an old fashioned photo montage. Somebody cobbled together 150 years ago. I mean, this some is Michael. For, some forced perspective. We've yeah. discovered forced perspective. Right. I mean, this is really some Michael Cremo level type yeah. stuff. And I mean, yeah, you literally just posted the cover of oh, the Graham Hancock book too. Yes. Yes. You yeah, know, on but my Twitter. I mean, one of my first experiences with, with most of this schlock was forbidden archeology span yeah. by Michael Cremo. And yeah, you know, back then, I think when I was 18 years old, it was absolutely fascinating. And it's it's just a riveting material. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, about that same time period, I came across Von Daniken and Chariots of the Gods. The And I don't know how I ended up being so suspicious of all these things, because all of the bricks were being laid at that early age to just completely pill me from the beginning. The... But I, I, I remember that book and I remember, you know, the, the, the crystal skull that was unearthed in the mine in Mexico and it was ge- the, the rocks it was embedded in were geologically dated to a million years ago or something like that. And, and, but also the giants, you know, the, uh, the giants and then the implied Smithsonian uh, institution cover up of the remains that they yeah. sort of like came in and in the dead of night took all the samples and now have them locked in the vault. Um, so the- I, I was, I was going to say Michael Cremo, I, I think I did a show on him a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we could do a whole other show. And if you do ever want to come back and do a show just on oh Michael Cremo, but we, we might have to, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. he is an interesting cat to delve into because he, he's like a, um, he's like a, not a Mooney, but a, um, a Harry Krishna dude. And, and, and he subscribes to the idea that, that human civilization is like, trillions of years old if not billions of years old all right all right yeah yeah but the very evidence he uses to you know quote i'm doing air quotes prove humans have been around for billions of years uh is the exact same evidence young earth creationists use to prove humans have been around like a young earth it's they use the exact same thing and and, and so it is an interesting kind of tool to sometimes throw at you know at creationists who are saying well the you know the ploxy you know you know footprints or the um you know the um 
the Meister prints, this is evidence of a young earth. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. The Hare Krishnas say this is evidence of a very old, ancient earth that's billions of human civilizations, billions of years old. Anyways, so yeah. I kind of went on along too long to that. No, but, no, but yeah. it, is, it is fascinating because it's sort of this, you know, this very kind of Scientology-esque backstory yes. that, you know, actually things are quite a bit older. And I'm going to you know, kind of just hook onto your tangent a little bit there because yeah, sure. one of my – one something that I am really fascinated by is something called the Silurian Hypothesis. And yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so the Silurian hypothesis is, you know, really it's referencing the Silurians from, oh God, what is that? Is that, um, Doctor Who? Yes. This no. from, <laughs> is it Doctor Who? Well, I don't know. I know, no, I know it's, they from, just, it's from an old, it's from an old TV show. I, it's, yeah, yeah. it's where the family, it's where the family yeah. gets transported back in time and there's a reptilian oh, race. Oh, Land there. of the Lost. Land oh, of the, the Lost. The Slee Stacks. Yes. And so, the 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 Silurian hypothesis and yeah if I'm wrong about that you know send me all the hate mail it's not it's not Carl's fault <laughs> um, find me on Twitter uh, the 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 Silurian hypothesis is just a thought experiment that consists in if we were to look for evidence of oh, right. yes, a yes. of a civilization that predates the historical record or the archaeological record that we have for modern humans what would be the what would be the signs. You know, what proxies would we see? What would be the specifically an advanced civilization? If there's going to be an advanced civilization, say, two million years ago or something like that, what might they have left behind in the in the geologic record that we could look for as evidence to substantiate them? That's it. I mean, I think right. that is a totally legitimate thought experiment. It shows, you know, this sort of open mindedness about things. Exactly the opposite of cloistering that the conspiracy theorists always accuse archaeologists of and and geologists you know of this limited thinking where they can't see outside of their discipline mm-hmm. you know it's it, i think it's fantastic but it is also a thought experiment and nothing has ever been found or really settled on as a a sol- as a as a um reliable proxy for the existence of a 2 million year old just for example civilization mm-hmm. You know, nothing, nothing has really been settled on because we look at the things that, that, you know, subjectively in our own human, in our own civilization's record that, you know, that we look for those same things in the past. Well, we're not going to see petrochemicals, you know, the plastic layer as, you know, like George Carlin talks about, you know, the whole reason we need people is because the earth wanted plastic. And, the, <laughs> you know, so we're, we're not going to we're not going to see that in the in the geologic record or in the archaeological record, you know, in the same way, because that would be assuming that they came up with petrochemical uses the same way we have. <laughs> we don't need to assume that. And they'd also have to have a source for it that, you know. Our source is their time period. So it's like, right. you know, like, and, you know, so, you know, what would they have used as their energy source if they're going to have an advanced civilization? These are fascinating things to think about, you know, like, and I think much more interesting than the Tartaria story, <laughs> the way that the, the conspiracists, you know, latch on to. But you'd asked, what happened to the Tartarians? Yes, yes. And that is the height of just brain melt, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Because what happened to Tartarians? I mean, really, we, well, we have to say, like, they were destroyed by the combination of, uh, of of stronger European powers and this cataclysmic event that somehow managed to destroy them, but not the same said European powers. 
you know, consistencies are built into this whole thing. You know, you have to just jump over the the, the paradoxes to be able to, to stay with the narrative. But the basically, at any rate, after this mud flood, which was allegedly caused by either, you know, either some or all of these causes, which would be solar flares, plasma weapons, nuclear energy or mud volcanoes. And <laughs> so mud volcanoes, as they exist now, unless geology was different 200 and some odd years ago, are basically about two meters tall and people tend to take baths in them. You know, it, <laughs> these are basically muddy hot springs is what they are. And, you know, it's just it's just heated water from under the Earth's crust and going through layers of silt to create very fine mud that is really nice on your skin. Um, but somehow this was a, this was a civilization ender. Um, and after the mud flood, basically this Tartarian population was reversed. And this really brings in something that is a, um, a little nefarious about, sorry, I'm leaning away from the microphone. This, uh, this brings in something that's a little nefarious about the, uh, the Tartarian story, the way some people tell it, because again, you can paint in whatever details you want. The. Basically, some some of the of the conquered Tartarians effectively, I'm going to use scare quotes here, lowered okay. the level of their consciousness, right. and joined the Europeans. Okay. They basically just joined the conquerors and started living as they did, salvaging what they could of the technology and helping these European elites to you know to subdue their people. The rest of them. You know, and some of these are direct quotes from things that I've pulled from various people's blog posts and explainers kept their gentle ways and essentially went back to the land. And these Tartarians, they have become the nomadic people on the Russian steppes, for example. Um, they are they have also formed the foundations of what we consider to be first peoples and Native Americans in North America. Uh, they're also the Aborigines and Africans. Because tied into the Tartaria thing is also this sort of um, into Africa evolutionary hypothesis <laughs> that uh, that that civilization actually evolved in the near in in Eurasia and went into Africa. Right, right. So it just you know again it, they just an inversion again of you know like they inverted Occam's razor they're going to invert the the out of Africa hypothesis and you know so this yeah so essentially. Nothing happened to the Tartarians. They're everywhere. And I actually like th that part is just is amazing to me because, you know, as melting as it is, it is basically as if history was being written by the screenwriting team from Battlestar Galactica. And it's <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, the 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 spaceship lands on the planet and they decide to settle in and then they spot the locals through the binoculars, you know, like. That's they're like they're basically, you know, this this is the same deal. This high tech group of people decided to give away their technology and just, mm. you know, like live, you know, live off the land and, you know, like rediscover this this hunter gatherer lifestyle. Hey, hey, spoiler alert for some people have not sat through like five seasons or four seasons. Battlestar Galactica. Like, yeah, yeah. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. <laughs> you can skip it. It's you like the, the last season is like is the worst. Yeah, you know, like I, I, it was on like 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, I mean, the uh, one thing I like the evidence of the mud flood. This again comes back to the architecture conspiracy. Yeah. The, um, you know, people, people have note, people have noticed that you know that these building, 
see these buildings that the Tartarians supposedly uh, designed have kind of like semi booths that kind of like um, oh you know extend quite above the uh, the uh, you know the the the, the uh, sort of the, the ground line. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, then, have, you, have you encountered this? Oh, yeah. I mean, you almost can't avoid encountering this. You just start search for evidence of mud flood and, and, and yeah. you know, you'll have enough for a lifetime. <laughs> um, all of the, the, the evidence from the mud flood, again, is relying on photographs. Really, to, have to, to understand the Tartarian story, you have to just put aside everything that has been discovered about archaeology, anthropology, geology, linguistics, all of it. I mean, all of it has to be abandoned. Historiography, it, it has to all be set down. And you, you end up with this sort of, um, I don't, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't even think of the example. I mean, this is sort of a, a, like a Hollywood blockbuster level of cinematic disbelief to be able to, to absorb this material. Yeah. And I, I, I really did give this one earnest, like earnest effort to unravel um, the, the evidence for the mud flood is, is again, all photo photographic, like I said, and usually it's going to be photographs from, you know, like anywhere from the, the 1900s up until present day, a lot of times, um, of these, uh, of public works projects that involve digging out the street to put in, you know, new water drainage or sewer lines or something like that. And that they're going to, um, <clears throat> They dig out and then they, you know, there's these very interesting photos where you can see that the, the, the current street level door of this structure was actually, you know, would have been originally on the second floor. And right. this was a modification of the original building that the original door was, was way below. And a lot of people really dismiss this without trying to explain it. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the debunkers that I've come across don't give a very satisfactory explanation for this at all. You know, they say really sort of snotty things like, have you ever heard of a basement or something like that? And the, you know, those are basement windows. And, but that's not really an explanation for this because you can see clearly from some of these photos that what is now this sliver, uh, you know, an 18 inch tall basement window <laughs> used to be a full six foot window and that the window has been sealed up by, by wood and brick and then buried as along with the original door and you know up to that level so th that's not that's not satisfying at all what actually does explain this and 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 there are different explanations depending on different instances uh in 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 the instances that i'm talking about where the door was buried like that it's very often that the uh that in in you know in uh in the early 1900s when cities were growing going through significant growth spurts that they found that the existing ways that they were channeling water out or the existing ways that they were handling plumbing were, or in sometimes, you know, a lot of these cities were built without plumbing in the first place, that they were totally insufficient as the city was growing. So there were sanitation concerns that needed to be addressed. And that, that involved public works projects that needed to bury sewage, plumbing, and drainage lines well below the city surface. So they raised the city, the city streets in a lot of these places, basically making the building shorter. And, the, you know, so you can see examples of this over and over again, you know, of these public works projects. I mean, it literally, like I had a question, I didn't know what was going on. It took me about a day to have a full robust picture of all of this. And you, you just, I mean, you really just have to put in a little bit of time to explain it. 
And you know the uh, the another explanation for the for some of those photos that are that are you know slightly different. One that that's given um, one that's shown as an example of a mud flood uh, excavation is in France, I believe. And what they were doing, um, what they had done is they had um, a a large building and and one of the uh, arrondissements in, in Paris had been demolished, and they entirely excavated the structure all the way down to its foundation, which left this giant hole, you know, basically about 60 feet deep or 80 feet deep in the middle of the city temporarily. And I think the photo was taken in the, in the eighties and the, and so what it revealed is right next to this excavated hole in the earth was the foundation that had originally been laid for the the apartment building, which was I, I think about 150 years old, right. that was right next door. You could see the foundation, and I, I think architecturally it was absolutely fantastic because you never get to see what's underneath things like this. Right. And it was this beautiful, like uh, large stone block uh, pillars that were filled in with dirt to provide all right. the support for this very large structure, which is the size of a city block, so it doesn't sink. I and mean, you have to remember that. A lar large amounts of Paris were drained when they were urbanizing. It used to be it was it was wetlands, and you know it was you know like and and it was a very wet area when it was first settled. I mean they settled it because it was wet because that's where the river was, and so you know but the water table soaks everything around a river, and you know so if you're going to urbanize, you need to start walling all that off and channeling it. And keeping it away from the rest of the ground or else everything's unstable. Again, explanations for things that are totally reasonable <laughs> that can be discovered. I am not an architect. I'm not a civic engineer. I'm not nothing like that, you know, and you can just do some research and read about these things. And and actually, if you follow the threads where these photos appear, like the Tartarian, you know, uh, stolen history type threads. Every once in a while, you will have a civil engineer show up that it just explains it, right. <laughs> you know, which is awesome. You know, so I, I they, they are they are truly doing God's work <laughs> when when they do those things. <laughs> wow. you, you know, I think I think on Pinterest I discovered and, and this is um, I mean, it's it's like, you know, credit to the 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 fantasy art it, talent of these people but the um it, right, right so the idea that some of these very well-known buildings um are just really the tip of the building that the absolutely the, the rest of the building has been buried by that mud flood and so they'll take i can't think of anything in particular but let's say let's go with um you know let's go with the uh, u.s capitol building right that you know you will sure, see an image yeah. of that and then you know like then literally that's you know that's like one third what you see and then two thirds and and how they've just you know they've extended it down into the earth and, but continue to with the with the the style and it, it's 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 beautiful right, right. like right but um yeah have, have you encountered any of these well yeah they they basically i mean th there was there was a tendency then to leave sort of like um, nothing undone, you know, so the, the Capitol building is a great example because when it, when, you know, when it was built, it was excavated around and they actually, they, they basically built the foundations to match the style of the visible part that, and nobody would ever see this again, but there it is, you know, they, <laughs> they, like they continue it, you know, underneath the earth. And yes, you know, and the Capitol building is, you know, another example of, a building that has been constantly 
renovated and reconstructed basically since it was originally built. And it was, you know, so they've excavated basement after sub-basement after sub-basement after sub-basement underneath that building. And I doubt that they've continued the style, you know, with each of those excavations, uh, it's, you know, especially like, you know, the ones that have, you know, taken place up into the the middle, the height of the Cold War, you know, to to use as a bomb shelter in case of a nuclear attack. You know, I doubt they were putting, you know, neoclassical appointments down there. You know, the uh, another uh, another example of this, I mean, you can you can find research for all of these things. The um, but the, the you know, some something is uh, an, there's an architectural element called an area. And which you find in Victorian architecture. Okay. And so basically any place where there is Victorian architecture, you can come across this element, this element called an area. And basically okay. these are, these are uh, in these buildings, what they would do is they'd have a street level and then there would be this sort of um, uh, like almost like a, a walkway over empty space to right. your front door and underneath it was another level. And this, so this sort of this, this, uh, this this recessed level below the street and what they would use these for is the kitchen so it wouldn't fill the house with cooking smells and you know and then it would vent straight it would vent straight to the outside you know the ventilation would lead straight out the window and you wouldn't fill your house up with all the smells of your cooking because in an urban environment you couldn't put the kitchen in the backyard and it also you know in in the summer you vent the heat out but in the winter time it also heats the house and you know, so right. the, the, you know, this is something that you can see, you know, that I actually saw when I lived in Oakland in the, in the old part of Oakland, California, okay. you can see this type of Victor- Victorian architecture. So, you know, anybody looking can search for architectural area and the, right. uh, and Victorian architecture, and you can see it in old Oakland as a good example of it. The, um, and so this is done in houses as well at different time periods, not just in sort of like townhouses or, you know, like, uh, uh urban spaces. Right. But there, you know, there's a history of like the Seattle underground or underground Atlanta is another one where they actually built a large section, large sections underground because it and it was used for, you know, it connected with an underground section of the train line. It was right. used for shopping and during the summer heat, it was a place to escape the brutality of the heat. Um, you know, in the 19th century, they raised Chicago again for you know for public works purposes to <clears throat> to add sanitation to retrofit the city uh, i mean it, it's it's this is the one that was like i was really I, I i most clearly did not have an easily dismissible answer for when i came across okay. it. all these pictures like well yeah, what is going on there that's a real thing you know like there really is a door underneath the street what's happening here and the and but I just kept pulling threads and before long I found that, you know, there are ample explanations and you know, it's, it's also an example of kind of the, um, the shotgun approach of just throwing everything mm-hmm. into the field, you know, kind of like Steve, Steve Bannon version of politics and <laughs> just, just, you know, fill the field with all kinds of stuff and then leave it to everybody else who wants to debunk it to try to, individually handle each one of these bits of evidence and they're not really evidence of anything. They're, they're all, they, they they just wear people down and, you know, for the people who want to debunk it, it's exhausting. Oh yeah. But for the people who, I mean, I think you, you actually just covered this in the, in the Nasara Gasara episode that the, the, for the people who believe it, it's just more evidence to, to substantiate the claims. 
And because they're not independently evaluating any of these things, they're, they're just, um, they're just soaking it up. And then they just see the person presenting it more and more as the expert because they're the one that has access to all of the real info, you know, the secret stuff that they want to keep hidden from all of us. All right. All right. We should, we should wrap up, but <laughs> yeah. uh, on, you, that, on that where, note. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On that uh, note. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, b- briefly, where do you, where do you see this going? I mean, I mean, obviously probably going to merge with QAnon, but uh, it largely, this- it, it largely has in a lot of okay. ways, not so oh, much wait. in the, it's, it's kind of a one way merger though, because generally from what I've seen, the people who buy into the Tartarian stuff yeah. will also buy into QAnon stuff. But the reverse is not necessarily true. Um, You know, there's a lot of it's not, you know, it's it's not a a mutual relationship necessarily. There's lots of people that are deep in QAnon lore and completely believe it. And they have no problem with, you know, reptilian clones being bred beneath Walmarts or something like that. But they 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 don't really either know anything about the Tartarian stuff or really care to learn. You know, so it's, it's not, it's not necessary for the worldview that they've constructed already to have, to add the Tartarian thing, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be a two-way street. The, um, but when it, you know, one of the things that I really see kind of in a, in a darker version of how this can unfold is that the, um, is what I was alluding to, or what I was mentioning earlier, it wasn't an illusion. It was just a statement, but the, it was about the uh, the idea of the Tartarians having this higher level of consciousness. And you, you can see this over and over again, that even studying this material will elevate your level of consciousness. Right, right. And, you know, the more you learn about it, the more you yourself will be elevated. And as you learn about these, you know, these essentially, even though not necessarily explicitly stated as such, enlightened beings. And the and then so. This that idea becomes problematic when you start mm-hmm. attaching it to the 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 Russian connection of you know like the Fomenko version of things because Fomenko didn't have that idea, but as soon mm-hmm. as you start backfilling this enlightened civilization idea into the Russian state idea, then you have this ethno nationalist view uh, of 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 you know, Slavic view this time. It's not the Aryans anymore. You know, now it's the Slavs and where you could, you could see yourself as the inheritors of this enlightened civilization, you know, the legacy. And the, so that, that is already kind of, um, that is, I really see a problem if that ends up dovetailing with some of the Putin apologists that are running around right now <laughs> yeah. that yeah. are that that see and this is you're seeing this in the Tartaria mythology already where Putin is now disclosing that you know the true the true historical chronicles of Tartaria you just right. can't get it in English yet but it's okay. out there you know it's it's All coming right. you know translators are working on it to get it to right. America right. you know like any day now it's going to be arriving <laughs> You know, like, just like, you know, just like all the rest of it, the, you know, the, the aliens, the Nasara again, you know, any day, you know, and the, and, and so that, that, that's already out there. But just recently I saw a video on, um, of Jordan Peterson on Twitter where he's essentially giving, um, almost spiritual cover to Mm -hmm. Putin and his invasion of Ukraine and what he's saying, what he he starts off by talking about the 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 West as 
you know, potentially, you know, in a just que- asking questions sort of vein, mm-hmm. you know, like, is the West entirely degenerate? You know, like, I think it might be. And then, and then he, and then he talks about the, you know, the, like, you know, the, how this could be justification for Putin to invade Ukraine to dispel the Western influences from what has, quote, been, in, in Peterson's words, historically been in the Russians, an area that has historically been in the Russian sphere of influence. And when that starts connecting with this degenerate West and the, you know, and enlightened inheritor or the inheritors of the, the legacy of this enlightened civilization, then yeah, that can turn bad. That can actually turn really bad. Um, Otherwise, I mean, it it really could just be a footnote. I mean, I, I honestly, we probably wouldn't even know much about Fomenko at all in the West if it wasn't for Gary Kasparov, the, the chess grandmaster. You know, like he 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 wrote um, a couple of a couple of things back in the early 2000s and that are referenced in a in a 2001 um, Telegraph article and about the the mathematics of history, where he's specifically referring to new chronology and how the history of the world has been stolen by Western elites and, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, okay. so he, he seems to have dropped that line. So I, I, I don't think we need to drag him too much. He, no, he no. perhaps could have just recanted and, yeah. you know, decided that he didn't need to actually recant or maybe he did someplace, you know. Okay. Uh, but I don't think that he would have even met it into the Western world, period, if it wasn't for, you know, somebody oh. like him who had some cachet that yeah. Yeah. and used it to evangelize Fomenko. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, I mean, you know, the you know, in Russia's drive to reclaim its empire i mean the whole like the whole mound mound builder myth uh you know in in north america right that, yeah. that the idea that you know these these ev- this evidence of you know civilization before western europeans uh you know the you know these these illiterate you know indians could not have possibly done it right. so therefore it was you know the uh, a race of western europeans that got here first i mean that was that was literally used to justify you know colonization right like we're not we're not Absolutely. kicking these people off their land we are taking our land they they actually stole it from our ancestors who got here and and you know built all these useful things right it, and it's, you it's, know yeah and by the, the you know the sort of like you know the the racist implication that you also get out of that line of thinking we deserve it more because they could have never used it to the to potential that we see exactly you know exactly. and and so you know so you end up stripping people of their heritage this way and you also strip really humanity from it i mean instead of seeing you know the the beautiful complexity of the actual mound building culture like in hopewell and places like that in yeah. in the midwest that and and it's con, you know and the connection that people that those people had to the their contemporaries in Central America, and how how you know how how much you know interaction there was across this entire continent before white people ever got here, you know instead of doing all that then you know we just say you know it couldn't have been them, you know. <laughs> Nobody well, could have piled dirt the way we do. Exactly. Well, I mean, I even I kind of complained to Jeb Card about that. Even this, you know, like I mean, it, it we call it a pyramid in Egypt, but we call it a mound here in North America. Seriously, like we, even it's, even the it, terminology, yeah. it's not you know, an, is, it's is, not is, an yeah. earthen pyramid. I mean, we even call it a pyramid in Central America, but for some reason, yeah. you know, the that we build it, uh, the you know, the fact that it's it's made out of earth. And, yeah. you know, that there's no stone available to quarry, but yeah. they need they wanted to build something anyway. You know, like, no, we, we can't have it. We can't call that exactly. an earthen pyramid or something. Yeah. Just, it's called 
yeah, Mount. Anyway, I, we should we should wrap up. I was gonna so um um we can find you on uh, on Wetwired podcast. Yes, absolutely. We're on uh, Wetwired podcast available pretty much everywhere. I think the only place that we've uh, we've avoided appearing is on Amazon Music. Okay. Um, that's the only place we have not listed ourselves. But yeah, so SoundCloud directly, Spotify. Um, right. uh, if if you listen on Spotify, I apologize. My uh, there's a learning curve with my editing skills, and no Spotify has an absurdly long period that they take before they refresh their files. So uh, y- you'll get to hear Wetwired Classic on Spotify. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're you're a fairly new podcast. That you, yeah, we, uh, we we just started last November. So right, yes, yes. the uh, we're we're hitting our I think fourteenth or fifteenth episode uh, released right now. So it's uh yeah we're fairly young. We're trying to pick up the pace. So I'm sorry, yeah. Patreon subscribers. Um, the uh, we're trying to get out at least one every month. Uh, we're we're shooting for two or three eventually. But yeah, yeah. I mean, like you've got you've locked into sort of what I call you know makes a podcast successful. Like it, it's um, it's just not the material they're presenting, but you know the personalities that, that you and Julian are, I appreciate as a, that as they describe you as you're not d bags, you know. So, <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it is so easy just to you know crack some mics and just be total d bags yeah, and just yeah. make fun of shit and, and then just be really kind of you know kind of arrogant and, and stupid and 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 you know you know yeah yeah it, it's be able to sort of deal with these subjects make fun of them but not again being kind of like you know ass hats about it all kind of, kind of thing so it's yeah like, i i really think that that's important and i'm really i'm really glad that it comes across that way you know that it that it because i mean at least to you maybe somebody else thinks i'm a total yeah, asshole yeah. but <laughs> the um the i've i've joked about you know i'm going to start getting hate mail because of you know how much i harass julian on the show you know the uh, for for his terrible jokes sometimes but the um the I love him dearly, and that's why I do that. Um, and then that's why I also leave it in the show. So just to show what happens behind the scenes, sometimes I don't cut it. Right, uh, but I, I really do think it's important, you know, just like the generosity, I think it's important to show somebody like Kasparov. Like, yeah, I mean, he if he says something now, that's a totally different story. I don't yeah. follow the guy that much. I actually do think I follow him on Twitter, but I never see his posts. Yeah. Um, and I don't check on him. But if yeah. he does something, absolutely, you know, definitely drag him to no end. You know, right, if, yeah. if, if you know, like knock him, knock him back. If, if you think, yeah, if a person thinks, if you think a person has it coming and, yeah. but when it comes to something, somebody says 20 years ago, no, I mean, come on. I, yeah. I can definitely make him partially responsible for making Fomenko known to the West, right. but it doesn't mean somebody else wouldn't have done it. And it doesn't mean he agrees with it now. And I, I extend that same kind of, uh, generosity to everybody we cover that Mm -hmm. I generally don't name names unless it's very specific instances, you know, like Michael Protzman of negative, you know, negative 48 fame. I will name him all the time. (laughs) He has it coming, you know, but I don't name the people that show up in his meetings. I don't name the people that that end up in his telegram circles or or telegraph circles uh, or telegram. Um, I don't name his, uh, I don't name those people because they don't deserve that. You know, they really don't. You know, we're, we're not libs of TikTok. <laughs> well, I think, I think, and Kasparov actually, I'm surprised because, because he, I mean, I mean, he seems to be, maybe he's regretting it that he's very, uh, he's very anti-Russian nationalism, like yeah. his Twitter. He's, I mean, it could be Putonian, as it, you don't know if that's the word nationalism, but I mean, yeah. it's not hard to be a nationalist with your own country, but, but, but yeah, yeah, he does seem to be very much, um, working very hard <laughs> against, uh, uh, you, you know, 
Putin style of nationalism. And and if Putonian is not a word already, it is now. I will use it. Okay, Putonian. All <laughs> it right. is Putonian. All right. All right. And uh, I guess some of my final question. Oh, before my final question, I always forget to plug my own book on my own podcast. Absolutely. Plug it. Yeah, yeah. yeah Might have I plug my own book? Hey, by the way, kids, you know, I'm always the podcast that doesn't want anything. But, you know, if you do, uh, if you do want to buy my book, uh, the um, Skeptics Book of Lists, you can find me on Amazon. I've got it priced. It's how many pages? You you have you're so nice. You actually bought it. I actually it's, yeah. I was actually I was going to wait till you finish your plug, but I was going to okay. say that I I I own this book and I can highly recommend it. It is very yeah. fun read. I I definitely see it as a a modernization of um of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's Everything Is Under Control. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I based it on the whole book of list format, but I mean, it's probably north of 400 pages. I oh, think I, I think got so it too. Yeah. for about maybe US, maybe 16 or 17 bucks. I I, I use that 9.99 uh, conceit. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a big ass book uh, for about as cheap as, you know, like a buck and a quarter on every copy. So um, it's just, you know, yeah, you know, whatever. If you want to buy it, that's great. I'll love you. If if you know, if 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 not, keep listening to the podcast. But or you know, hey, if you only got you know a a dollar every month to spend, join Wetwired. Be a patron of Wetwired. <laughs> you know, Monster Talk. There's so much really. Oh, good I know. There's out so there. many good shows out there. There's exactly. so many good shows, and and a lot of them. I mean, some of the bigger bigger shows get all of the attention, but there are so many good smaller shows. Exactly. And, like I mean, exactly. Yeah, I like. I, I really like it. And you know, the, your 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 guest that hosts Saucer Life that is a fantastic show. Monster Talk is a fantastic <laughs> show. Yeah, they like these are these are really worthwhile listens. Exactly. Exactly. Right. All right. I guess my final question, um, uh, Sean. So, uh, you know, if somebody heard you on the Conspiracy Skeptic podcast, they've encountered you at some convention or something, uh, uh, and they say, "Hey, man, that was awesome. I just it was so enjoyable. You turned me on this whole thing. Uh, can I buy you a drink? What do you what uh, what uh, what what drink could they buy you? If it's in the afternoon, I'll probably take an IPA, and if it's in the evening, okay. I'll probably head to the whiskey. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair, fair enough. Then. Fair enough. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. So I will. I will let you go. Have a thank. Thank you for spending some time and, and have a good day there. Hey. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. It was a lot of fun. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Carl Mamer. You can listen to more conversations that he's hosted on the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast. You can also find his book, The Skeptic's Book of Lists, on Amazon. And if you'd like to support Wetwired and get access to our back catalog of premium episodes, as well as get an extra episode every month, for $3 a month, you can get one of our True Believer memberships, at least until they run out. Your support helps us cover the cost of running the show, and it helps us stay ad-free and independent. You can also help out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing the show on social. If you want to follow us or reach out, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WetWiredPod. Until next time. We have the Knights of Templar Parade on Market Street in 1883. So again, look at these beautiful buildings. And just the style of town, you know, to imagine in 15 years that they threw these babies up. 
you know, gold miners. And I'm not sure what's going on back here. I mean, really interesting. Look at this building with uh, what look like holes in it. And again, you know, I got a lot of comments in my last video about, you know, were those photos before the World's Fair? And just to be sure, you know, that, that again piqued my curiosity to come in and look. And sure enough, we do see these images pre-World Fair. Even right here, this is pre-World Fair. And, you know, only less than 15 years after the inception of the city do we see this amazing, amazing architecture. I mean, look at this. Look at this ornamentation around this entryway with this horse statue and I mean this is this is really something else and you know when you search San Francisco in Wikipedia you are not gonna get these photos. You know, they're not gonna show you such things. And again they're gonna show you the 1915 World's Fair and tell you that the buildings were temporary, but this is on Market Street. This has nothing to do with the World's Fair. Okay, look at this. <laughs> look at this. E pluribus unum. This, uh, you know, what I'm going to say is a uh, more of a Tartarian emblem than any San Franciscan ornamentation. And I don't know if this still exists, but this is absolutely amazing. You know, I've never, I've never seen anything like this around an arch. This is really special. 